Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at www.schwepp.net. Episode 24, Introducing the Father of Western Esotericism, Plato. The safest general characterization of the European philosophical tradition is that it consists of a series of footnotes to Plato. So said Alfred North Whitehead, who was a pretty heavy philosopher himself. And while Whitehead may be exaggerating a bit for effect here, his statement is quite literally true if, for European philosophical tradition, we substitute Western esoteric tradition. I will make the case, in this and in upcoming episodes, that Plato is the absolute daddy of Western esotericism, in ways both obvious and subtle. Now, we saw in our discussion of Pythagoras and Pythagoreanism, that it's hard for us to get at the doctrines of the original Pythagoreans because the thought of Plato exercised such a strong distorting effect on them in after times. Basically, almost everyone who claimed to be a Pythagorean or to write about Pythagoras after Plato was unconsciously or consciously writing about Plato's ideas, which have been thought by many to be Pythagorean. And there are, indeed, recognizably Pythagorean ideas in some of Plato's dialogues, although what that means exactly has been the subject of a lot of controversy. But Plato didn't exactly follow the Pythagoreans. He took ideas from them, which he found useful, and detourned them to his own radically different philosophical agenda. And the same goes for Parmenides, Heraclitus, and Empedocles, too. Oh, and we find a strong Orphic presence in some of Plato's dialogues. In fact, Plato was a consummate philosophic magpie and made free but transformative use of the entire breadth and depth of contemporary thought in his time, mining both his philosophic predecessors and contemporary religious ideas for materials that he could use. And so you see why the previous episodes on the Presocratics and Orpheus have been essential prolegomena to looking at Plato. To use Whitehead's famous line for our, our own purposes, we can say that, in a sense, the safest general characterization of this podcast up till now is that it has consisted in a preface to Plato. In this episode, we want to introduce our man in very general terms. The figure who emerges will not be very familiar to anyone whose sole knowledge of Plato comes from an introduction to philosophy class or a basic philosophical introduction to his work in book form. Plato is the single most influential thinker in the Western world, without much credible doubt, although it's obviously hard to measure these things. But did you know that he was perhaps the most widely hated philosopher in antiquity? Plato's signature doctrine was, of course, the so-called theory of forms, but did you know that Plato never actually formulates a theory of forms? Plato wrote an immense body of work, the dialogues, and we're incredibly fortunate to possess all of the dialogues in pretty much good shape, with the odd manuscript problem and so on and so forth. But basically, we know what Plato said. But did you know that not a single word of Plato himself is preserved in the dialogues? Well, gentle listener, you may well know these things, and you may not, but there is cultural treasure here waiting to be excavated and examined, and the undertaking will be valuable for experts and neophytes alike, or at least that is the hope. And I'd like to make a general point here, in the context of Plato's ability constantly to surprise us, 
There's a sense in which Plato is the ultimate literary trickster, and I'm by no means certain that anyone understands all of his tricks, nor even that any of his close associates understood all of them back in the day. We might even have to consider the possibility that Plato himself didn't understand all of his own tricks. I've read a lot of Plato, and have, after many, many years of reading this stuff, reached the second stage of knowledge, which Plato's Socrates lays out in the dialogue The Apology, I've come to realize that I do not understand what Plato was trying to do. And I've come to understand that on a fundamental, deep level in my bones. The more I read of Plato, the more I find myself at a loss. Plato is full of paradox and contradiction, unless he isn't. He slyly tells us that lying to the public is meritorious, and so we would naturally expect that he might be doing this very thing in his own writing, unless he isn't. He cracks lots of jokes, some of which we can't even understand anymore, and sometimes we can't tell if a platonic character is joking or not. And if Plato Socrates is joking, does that mean Plato is joking? All of his work, except a few letters which have survived, which are very important evidence, all of his work is dramatic fiction, but it's obsessed with the possibility of telling the truth, unless it isn't. He presents philosophical structures of outrageous subtlety and complexity and depth in certain dialogues, and in other dialogues he tears them utterly down, unless that's not what he's doing. He has actually no teachings, per se, unless he does. The listener perhaps begins to glimpse how Plato might have given rise not only to many influential ideas, but to a whole approach to problems of esotericism, of truth, and of reality, which is immensely problematic and can drive you insane. Let's start with some basic biography to give ourselves a false sense of security. As it turns out, although Plato lived in 5th century Athens, a time and place which have been very much put at the heart of the narrative of the West, and on which thousands and thousands of books have been written. The basic work of critically sifting through Plato's biography and trying to piece together his life still remains to be done. We have a whole bunch of later antique material, um, and some of it quotes earlier biographical material, which is now largely lost. So Plato's biography is by no means simple to reconstruct in any detail. From his own time, or soon after his death, there was an encomium of Plato delivered in a speech by his nephew and successor, Speusippus. And Speusippus's successor, Xenocrates, wrote a book on Plato's life, which is quoted in later authors, but unfortunately we don't have the book itself. We also have the text of Plato's Last Will and Testament, which may well be the original text, more or less, preserved in Diogenes Laertius. So that's a very interesting little bit of information. But a lot of our later biography soon becomes semi-legendary. We have, for example, in the imperial period, the Latin-speaking Platonist Apuleius giving a presi of Plato's life, which we can use as a typical example of the later itinerary attached to Plato's name. After Socrates died, Plato set out to improve himself, so he studied geometry under Theodorus of Cyrene, learned astrology and religious rites from the Egyptians, then, of course, went to Italy to study the disciplina, the way of life, of the Pythagoreans, and lastly, he visited the Indians and the Persian Magoi to study their wisdom. So this is the sort of thing you tend to find in later biographies of Plato. 
we should return both to the Pythagorean question evoked here and to the Orientalist tropes of wise barbarian sages at whose feet Plato may or may not have learned. Concerning the ancient biographical tradition, we can say that it becomes more hagiographical as time goes on. So Apuleius, whom we've just been looking at, he pretty much considers Plato an inspired philosopher. But by the time of Olympiodorus, in the 6th century CE, the end of antiquity per se, Plato has become quite literally the son of Apollo, and he's a wonder-working sage with magic powers. Among the many works later attributed to Plato in the esoteric traditions, as we shall see, magical works, and sometimes really strange magical works, feature prominently. So many things become associated with Plato's name that we would not consider uh, to be philosophical, like magic, like astrology, wonder-working powers. So that's the state of the biographical tradition in a oversimplified nutshell. We have lots and lots of information, but it's really hard to sift out what we might consider solid fact from the welter of, well, less solid fact. The following facts can be considered pretty solid. Plato was the son of Ariston and Perictiani, Athenian aristocrats. Perictiani may have been a descendant of Solon himself. Solon, as we've seen in a previous episode, was the reformer who gave Athens her legal code. As for Ariston, we don't know much about him except that he was rich and he educated his son well. That's assuming that Plato wasn't actually the son of the god Apollo, with Ariston playing Joseph to Perictiani's Mary. Plato was probably born in Athens and definitely died in Athens, probably living from 428 or 427 BCE or 424 to 423 BCE, but the date of his death is a little more secure in 348 to 347 BCE. We don't need to get into the problems with the dating, but the um, wildly different possible dates for his birth should give you an idea that we aren't on very solid ground here. But we can place Plato at the end of the 5th century and living well into the 4th century in Athens. The philosophy we've been talking about in previous episodes began in the 6th century, so we have about a century and a half of philosophy before Plato came on the scene, and Plato shows a familiarity with pretty much the whole tradition and plays with it freely as we shall see again and again. There are a few points about 5th and 4th century Athens that we should mention here. The Peloponnesian War was fought between 434 and 404. That's a long time to be fighting a war, and it was perhaps the single most important piece of political background for understanding Plato's life. It must have formed the background of his childhood, in fact. The war was between the Delian League and Sparta and her allies. The Delian League is often referred to as the Athenian Empire, but it wasn't an empire in the classic sense of the term. The Delian League was a confederacy of city-states dominated by Athens which Athens had built up from 473 onward. Ideally, this was a confederacy of Greeks banding together to face the overwhelming Persian threat, but in fact it became a tool of Athenian foreign policy to some extent. The eventual loss of the Peloponnesian War by Athens and the Delian League had huge political repercussions in Plato's time. After the war, the city was ruled for a year by the Thirty Tyrants, a junta of pro-Spartan oligarchs, who did some nasty purges and generally brutalized the Athenian population. Plato's family was involved in this, that is, they were actually involved in the brutal oligarchy, a fact which will come up again. And 
It was the unrest following on the war which explains the execution of Socrates, a formative event in Plato's life. So the other thing that was going on in Athens in Plato's time that we must talk about was the philosophic activity of Socrates. Who was this guy? He was a genuine Athenian person who lived from about 470 to 399 BCE. So he's older than Plato. He didn't write anything down himself, but basically hung around the Agora in Athens, consorting with some of the cream of Athenian society, but practicing a radically new form of philosophy. He didn't ask primarily what things are made of or how they got to be the way they are. He asked the fundamental ethical question of how humans are supposed to live. He was famous for the practice of elenchos, the practice basically of getting in people's faces and questioning their assumptions. He was a bit like that crazy guy in the park who starts hectoring random passers-by with great vehemence, except that he was, as Plato and others portray him, utterly charming, and his seeming simple Simon persona hid a ridiculous depth of thought behind his insouciance. This often resulted, at least as Plato portrays it, in his interlocutors being reduced to a state of aporia, a Greek word meaning, in a philosophic context, the admission that you have not got a clue. In this podcast, you may hear the term aporetic, referring to a group of Plato's dialogues which end on a note of, I have no idea what the truth is, rather than, aha, we have discovered the truth. So these are dialogues that end on a question mark, rather than an exclamation mark, as Aleister Crowley puts it. These are also often known as the Socratic dialogues. These are also often thought to be Plato's earliest dialogues, or among his earliest dialogues. And we will return to this question of the aporia later in the podcast. The Socratic elenchos had the potential to devastate easily held assumptions, but it didn't always lead one to the truth. Socrates was Plato's teacher, and appears in the dialogues as a character, but we can't really talk about Socrates in this context. We need to speak of Plato's Socrates. It's a weird fact, and hard to get our heads around today, but the Platonic dialogues are peopled with many real historical folk, but Plato makes them say all sorts of stuff which they probably wouldn't have said in reality. Although Socrates was dead by the time Plato sat down to write, it's very difficult to square the Socrates of the Apology, which tells the story of his trial for impiety by the Athenian court, where he basically acts like a wise buffoon, and the Socrates of the Republic, a later dialogue, where he enters into a vastly long and complex discourse into epistemology, ontology, and the nature of justice, studded with mathematical and harmonic materials of a cryptic nature. It's clear then that Plato's Socrates serves in some degree as a mouthpiece for Plato, but the exact degree to which this is the case remains frustratingly unprovable. And Plato's other characters often voice ideas which some readers will think are platonic. It all gets very confusing. As we shall see next episode, it's easy to see why Plato's reputation as the esoteric writer par excellence arose. Regardless of his actual intentions, it is the case that by reading the dialogues as though they have a secret subtext, it's possible to excavate what seems to be a doctrine amid the welter of different dramatic voices. But if you don't read it as though it has a secret subtext, it becomes very difficult indeed to find a unifying um, doctrine or teaching in the works of Plato. The Athenian comic poet Aristophanes 
is an interesting case here, because Plato uses him as a character in the dialogue Symposium, and Aristophanes had himself used Socrates as a character in his comedy The Clouds, where Socrates is portrayed as a philosophical freak gazing at the sky and speculating on the nature of the heavenly bodies. This is instructive. Plato's dialogues are first and foremost a form of drama. We have to keep this in mind whenever anyone, myself included, says, Plato says this, or Plato's theory of forms maintains that, blah blah blah. Let's take the famous theory of forms as a case study here. Plato never gives a theory of forms, as we mentioned earlier. The Platonic Socrates, in various different dramatic contexts, discusses various different approaches to the problem of individual things and their ontological commonalities. And if you read all these accounts together, you can construct a theory of forms. That is, a theory of eternal, immaterial archetypes in which individual objects, real things in everyday parlance, things like tables and cats, participate and exist by virtue of. So, a cat is only a cat because there is an immaterial form of cat, or perhaps catness, that exists elsewhere, but also within the cat itself in some respect. And that's exactly what the ancient Platonists did. They put together a theory of forms from the scattered hints in Plato's dialogues, but we never find a theory as such laid out by Plato. And if you want to bring the almost maddening dialogue, the Parmenides, into the mix, to which we will devote a whole episode, of course, we seem to have Plato demolishing step by step the entire structure of the theory of forms, which might be built up based on earlier dialogues. But of course, esoteric interpretation took this dialogue especially seriously in late antique Platonism and made it into a metaphysical treatise of prime importance and one which of course takes the existence of the forms for granted. We shall return to this dialogue and its esoteric afterlife in greater depth when we discuss Platonisms of later antiquity. So we never find a theory of forms in Plato. In fact, we never find Plato at all. His name appears only three times in the dialogues. Twice he's mentioned in the Apology. That's the, the one that tells the story of Socrates' trial. And he's mentioned as a member of the audience at the trial. The other case, the only other appearance of Plato, is in the Phaedo, 59b, where it is mentioned that he had not been present at Socrates' final interview with his companions on account of an illness. So Plato's explicit presence is only an absence. Ancient Greek actors wore masks representing characters. Plato is always wearing a mask in the dialogues, the masks of the characters of the dialogues. And when is the man behind the mask Plato himself? We cannot truly know, or at least I confess to my own aporia here. There are, of course, many scholars who think we can know, but I prefer to approach this in an aporetic style. Plato was, as we have said, first and foremost a trickster, a fact which cannot be overemphasized, as he's too often seen as a stolid truthmonger on a rather humorless quest for the ultimate reality. Plato actually invented the dialogue form. There was, of course, in his time, an incredible tradition of Greek verse drama, which was dialogic through and through, but Plato took the form and made it into prose for the first time, as far as anyone knows, and moreover did so with an artistry which ranks among the greatest literary achievements of all time. He's not only the West's greatest philosopher, but one of the West's greatest writers as well. In fact, Plato logs a lot of firsts, 
the school he founded, the educational institution, the academy, has been considered the West's first institution of higher learning. We still talk about the academy as the sort of sum total of all the world's universities, as though Plato's academy had children and spread across the globe. He was the first known philosopher to talk about philosophy under that name, calling it philosophia. For all we know, he may have invented the term, although, as we've seen, a lot of later writers attribute it to Pythagoras. And perhaps Socrates came up with it, we just don't know. He's the first thinker whom we know to discuss the idea of immaterial realities. He actually coins a term, ahylos, which literally means without wood. Um, wood or timber, hyle, being the Greek term for matter, um, i.e. the stuff things are made of, as a house or a ship is made of wood. So ahylos is thus immaterial. What a strange and resonant idea. The immaterial and of course, by contrast, the material. And what a long and fruitful history this idea has gone on to have in the Western esoteric traditions. We should perhaps use this opportunity to mention a few more areas where Plato contributed in a fundamental way to the intellectual currents of Western esotericism. He posited an archetypal world which is more true than the phenomenal world of everyday life, but which is inaccessible to our senses. This is the world of forms which, as we've seen, Plato himself never posits. And if we are to take our dramatic reading of Plato seriously, we should say that it is Plato's Socrates who posits in various different formulations the idea of such a world, or perhaps level, of reality. Now, we'll discuss the forms in later episodes in some depth, but we mention them here as one of the most fundamental aspects of esoteric thinking. The idea that things have a deeper and more real fundamental nature than appears on the surface along with the subsidiary idea that this fundamental nature is eternal, which leads to interesting conclusions. Listeners will perhaps be reminded not only of later Platonist thinkers like Plotinus here, but also of other traditions, such as the Hermetica, Avicennan esoteric philosophy, or even the thought of Carl Gustav Jung. But the concomitant doctrine, which follows from a doctrine of forms, that we can't trust our senses, that the most real and important qualities of things are occult qualities, has a resonance throughout Western esoteric thought far beyond any short list of specific authors is going to give us an idea of. The world of forms is a resonant and glorious metaphysical other world where many of the great minds of the West have strayed. Plato also argued for an immortal immaterial soul. As we saw in episode 4, the idea of a unified center of consciousness, a soul, was actually an idea with a specific birth date in the 6th century BCE in early philosophy. Plato takes the doctrine of the soul, which he found in sources such as Pythagorean thought, and perhaps Heraclitus and Empedocles, if Empedocles' daimon was indeed such a center of identity and consciousness, and he devised his own stunningly radical theory of the soul. It is an immortal, eternal, entity and reincarnates according to stellar cycles, passing through many bodies. Again, we're actually cobbling together a kind of doctrine here from passages taken from across multiple dialogues, which have different speakers in some cases. So we shall have to return to the Platonic discussions of soul in later episodes in order to do the subject justice. It is very, very important for Western esotericism. The same can be said of certain Platonic set pieces. The creation myth in the dialogue the Timaeus 
which we shall discuss in an upcoming episode, is one of the single most influential works of literature ever composed. Not only ancient philosophers, but ancient esoteric religious movements were fundamentally shaped by the form that Plato gave in the Timaeus to the creation story. And this influence extends strongly through the Middle Ages in all three Abrahamic faiths, into the Renaissance when its Greek original was rediscovered and studied, and even into the modern period. And the Timaeus myth is only the most prominent of the Platonic formulations which have gone on to have flourishing afterlives in Western culture. Platonic paradoxes survive and continue to bedevil thinkers from the most rarefied philosophical speculations to pop culture at its popest. The famous Euthyphro paradox, for example, features in the Jay-Z song, No Church in the Wild. Is pious pious because God loves pious? Socrates asks, whose bias do y'all seek? All for Plato, screech. I'm not quite sure exactly what Jay-Z's take on the Euthyphro paradox is here, but he's clearly pondering it. Now, we've all experienced platonic relationships. These are the ones where you don't have sex. As we shall see, the original conception from which the platonic relationship gets its name, outlined in Plato's Symposium, is a highly eroticized but unconsummated relationship between an older man and a younger man, or even a boy, which thus has slightly more to it than the modern usage would suggest, especially as it seeks to sublimate all eroticism into a higher form of love, love for the ultimate ground of beauty itself. Now, it's obvious in retrospect that Plato was born for greatness, but it wasn't necessarily obvious in his day. It's a little-known fact that Plato was a hugely divisive figure during and just after his lifetime, and he probably would be in the top five if we had a contest for most hated philosopher in antiquity. I include some of the secondary studies of ancient Antiplatonica, as they're known, in the suggested reading for this episode. So you can check out um, all the haters of Plato back in the day if you're interested. The most common charge in this whole anti-Platonic literature was that of plagiarism. Plato stole his ideas from other philosophers, but passed them off as his own. Well, we've already seen that Plato was a magpie, so this charge might not come as too much of a surprise to us. But the question of what exactly plagiarism might have meant in an antique context is something to which we shall have to return, because it's a little more uh, complicated than just he stole people's stuff. There was no copyright in antiquity. Now, another little-known fact outside of specialist circles who study ancient Platonism for a living is the strange and convoluted story of Plato's Academy. Plato's work was kind of forgotten in the immediate aftermath of his death. This isn't actually true, but what is true is that the history of the Platonic Academy is a really weird story with lots of ups and downs, confusing transformations and unexpected doctrines. What we don't see is the immediate foundation of a Platonic school, as we do, for example, with the Stoics and the Epicureans, and even with the thought of Aristotle to a degree. We have the Peripatetics arguably arising in the wake of Aristotle's death. But um, in the case of Plato, there's an enigmatic period known nowadays as the Old Academy, headed by Speusippus and then by Xenocrates, Plato's immediate successors. And the work of these two gentlemen is almost completely lost to us, which has led to the early academy influentially being called a riddle. But one thing is clear. Speusippus and Xenocrates, although their thought differed on certain points, were both concerned with a mathematical ontology. They were not Socratic philosophers wandering around and buttonholing people to reduce them to tiers of aporia. 
They were doctrinal theorists concerned with entities like the One and the Dyad, the sorts of quasi-numerical realities which the later tradition associates with Pythagoreanism. Although, as we've seen, we need to be very careful when applying this label to anyone. We always have to ask which Pythagoreans, or Pythagoreans according to whom. At any rate, after this early flush of mathematico-ontological thinking in the academy, things shifted gears in a big way, and the skeptical academy arose. This was a succession of teachers at Athens who attached themselves to the Socrates of the Aporetic Dialogues. They questioned all doctrines and doubted whether certainty might be achieved in any sphere of human knowledge. The term academic in antiquity would come to mean skeptical. Like, you just say, I'm an academic, that would mean I'm skeptical, I don't believe in strong truth claims. Until, that is, the imperial period, when various Platonists like Plutarch and Numenius would attempt to redefine the term, either as, in fact, a dogmatic Platonism, in the case of Plutarch, so he sought to save the academy for the Platonists, basically, or as a skeptical betrayal of Plato, who was, in fact, a dogmatic esoteric philosopher with a strong metaphysics of truth, in the case of Numenius. Now, this is not the place for a potted history of the development of Platonist schools of thought in antiquity, though that time will assuredly come. My purpose in mentioning these two earlier currents of thought arising from Plato is to highlight Plato's enigmatic quality. His work contains so much depth, detail, and tricky swerves and weird unexpected little moments that you can construct from it a neo-Pythagorean metaphysical school which derives the whole of reality from number-like primordial entities about which you can have perfectly certain knowledge. And you can also read Plato and decide to found a school which denies the possibility of any knowledge or truth. When a philosopher's thought gives rise to utterly opposed methodologies in this way, you know you are dealing with someone with a complex and problematic way of doing philosophy who doesn't just lay his cards on the table. In fact, I would say that Plato while he is the first to do so many things, was perhaps the last great philosopher of the never-lay-all-your-cards-on-the-table school. Aristotle, his student, had what we might call an anti-esoteric approach to philosophy. Philosophers should write clear prose and endeavor to minimize ambiguity, hinting, and double meanings as much as possible. This, in fact, became a popular standard for what it was to write good philosophy. Banish the shadows, the liminal spaces between truth values, and reduce every statement to a digital value of true or false. Hence, the pre-Socratic poets, or any philosophical poet, were a relict of an earlier way of doing things, a way which embraced narrative depth and polysemy over a univocal kind of argumentative approach. Plato would never have been satisfied with such an approach. Unless he would. We'll have a look at the famous Platonic lecture on the good in the next episode, and once again, all our certainties about Plato as a thinker will fall away. The next episode, which I just mentioned, will introduce a truly rabbit holeish question, that of the esoteric Plato. If you are a bit confused after this episode, that's good, but just wait until the next episode. We're going to generate some serious historical aporia. This episode has hopefully gone some way toward situating Plato the man in his historical context, both in terms of what came before him and with a nod to what came after, that is, the history of Platonism, broadly speaking. But the story only expands and becomes ever more enigmatic and complex from here on in. 
Join us for the ride next time as we discuss the long history of reading Plato as an esoteric author. No, as THE esoteric author. And until then, just try to keep up with the subject matter of the podcast and stay esoteric.